0: And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. Very pleased to be joined today by Robert Breelove. So I've wanted to have Robert on the show for a while because I think he's one of the most clear thinking, articulate people, uh, not only in the Bitcoin or crypto space, but in providing commentary about economics generally. So, uh, Robert, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for being with me.
1: Yeah, Ashton, it's great to meet you, and glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So, Bitcoin's obviously this this you know what you believe, what I believe, what others believe is this critically important invention, largely because some of the economic problems that it was designed to solve. And so, if you're the average American, you know that something isn't right. Intuitively, you know that. They're saying inflation is now 6%, but that doesn't seem right because homes are going up 25%. And only this year, although those is exacerbated this year, but throughout the last several decades, they see that meat is up 30%. They see that, you know, uh, the, the price of gas, for example, just this year alone is 70%. Uh, and all these are long-term problems. Um, they, they understand that wage growth has stagnated since basically the 1970s, the uh, they know that printing money at the rate of trillions and trillions of dollars a year, um, which is accelerating in itself just doesn't seem right, but maybe they haven't thought of the full ramifications with entails. How do you sort of see these, how do you make sense of, of, of what the economic state of affairs is? What are the, what are the root causes of these deleterious problems? And then we could get into why Bitcoin offers a, way to sort of combat these, these deleterious consequences and, and save people from them?
1: Yeah, there's big, big questions. Um, I agree that I think most people understand, like in their bones, something's going on, something's wrong, things are not the same. Uh, there's a fundamental shift post March, 2020, that I think everyone in the world feels, no matter which side of the table you're on. Um, and in my view, you know, we've been playing with this game of money for forever, right? It's, it's necessary. It's a necessary social construct for us to cooperate at scale. But the problem has always been the human element. And we've always had um, this issue of giving people the power. Uh, I shouldn't say giving, people taking the power to control money for their own benefit. And it's been wrapped in all this intellectual apologism and, you know, excuses. And the entire body of Keynesian economics is really just this uh, systemized regime apologist. They're just trying to basically justify intellectually an excuse to monopolize the most important tool in the world, which is money. And as Americans, we know, like, if you understand the principles on which this country was founded, why this country was founded, right? One of the big reasons being taxation without representation, that's all inflation is full stop. It does nothing else. It is, the printing of money is a tax largely on the, it's a regressive tax largely on the poor and economically vulnerable. So if you are living paycheck to paycheck, or you are living on fixed income, or you are otherwise depending on the dollar to retain its purchasing power over time, Right, if that's where you're storing wealth or storing value, you are the one being victimized by inflation. They are, um, they've got their hand in the cookie jar, as you might say. And um, you know, it's amazing to me how effective this illusion has been, because it, you know, we we understand this very clearly when you're dealing with like a company's cap table, right? If you've got shares in a company. You would never have uh, a company chartered where there's one group that could arbitrarily print new shares of equity for themselves and dilute everyone else. That doesn't make any sense because the group that could do that would dilute the other group to zero. That's their direct financial incentive. Yet that model, right, where we have the asymmetry of one group being able to dilute, which is to say to rob another group at their own discretion, and with no, the other group having no option, no pushback, no no veto, nothing. They can't do anything about it, right? There's no one here, no one in the world can do anything to stop the Federal Reserve from expanding the money supply. Um, and it, you know, it gets even more complicated because actually, and I'm going through this in my series with Jeff Snyder, the Federal Reserve themselves have lost control over the money supply. They themselves cannot define money. They cannot measure money. They cannot control its supply expansion. The derivative market that they've created on gold, which is the dollar has been, uh, exponentiated. There's other derivatives on top of dollars large, largely these are, uh, the offshore dollar system called, called Euro dollars. And that whole market is opaque and it's, it's escaped their control as well. So we've created a real, real mess and you know, it's very difficult to say exactly how this plays out, but the end state we can predict with a high degree of confidence and that is that all fiat currencies always become inflated into worthlessness because that is just the direct financial incentive of the issuer right if you can just issue money and accumulate wealth for yourself and those nearest you right those politically most proximate to you and dump the expense of that uh, wealth confiscation on everyone else that is exactly what you'll do and you'll do that until the money is is worthless
0: so so someone might say well what does the federal reserve get out of uh you know expanding the the money supply do these people individually benefit i mean what's what's their uh the shareholders of the central bank
1: have a perpetual profit they extract seniorage out of the money they get access to newly printed money first so they benefit from the cantillon effect which is to say the redistributive effects of inflation so if i can print money that you're forced to use i can rob you that's what the federal Mm -hmm. reserve is doing that's what all the entire nation state that's centered on the federal reserve, the entire political class, every piece of legislation, regulation, every dollar spent it's either coming from direct taxation or newly printed money. And in 2020, it was about 50, 50, right? We had $4 trillion in direct tax receipts. We had $4 trillion, newly produced money. So what's in it for them free money. Um, They're still, this is it. I mean, it's, it's a hard bitter pill to accept and people Perhaps 24 months ago would have looked at me like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat, but I think the consequences that have manifested themselves since prove the point. Um, People are being robbed in broad daylight all the time. If you have dollars in your pocket or dollars in your bank account, you're being robbed all the time. And people are waking up to that reality and scrambling to try and position themselves so they're not being robbed. And I think... We're really seeing the beginning of the end of statism itself. And, you know, I take quite the stark Rothbardian view on this. Rothbard's a very famous American libertarian economist and philosopher. And he says essentially that, you know, the state's prime business model is coercion, compulsion, and violence so what distinguishes the state from every other business in the world is they generate all of their revenues not from voluntary exchange everything is taken as nietzsche said everything the state has is stolen everything it says is a lie and i think this is where we're at you know we've seen this happen before like with communists you know soviet russia towards the end it was just one third of everyone in the population i think was a government informant um, mm. it's just a ton of bullshit you know the 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 gdp i think the inputs in the soviet economy soviet economy i forget the exact numbers but say 100 billion dollars were going in to the soviet economy 33 billion were coming out i'm just making a number but the the, the economy was diseconomizing it was value destructive so the more coercion you have in a marketplace, the more value you destroy. And when you hear these euphemisms like printing money, printing money always is such a good first order deception to trick people because people think, oh, it's wonderful. Printing money. We ran out of money. We need more money. I have bills to pay. I don't have enough money. Print some money. Give me some money. Sounds great. Please do that. But you don't see how, the, how it actually mechanically works. Um, there was an ex- one of the... One of the monetary expansions recently worked out to be $46,000 per U.S. household. There's 130 million U.S. households. So 130 million times 46,000, that was the net increase in the money supply. This was in 2020. The checks that went out to those individual households were less than $4,000 each. So where do you think the difference goes? The $46,000 printed per household, 4,000 goes out to each household. Where does the the Delta, the 42,000 go? Well, it's spent by politicians, anyone that can access this money first, usually, a lot of it went out through these, um, you know, loan programs that, that further drive centralization by benefiting big businesses and um, hurting small business. So this whole thing, all state intervention is just destructive to human cooperation. Maybe it was necessary to protect economic Mm -hmm. activity, like cure the borders, so we could let people cooperate, like, there's some Mm -hmm you know, historical apologism and excuses there that may or may not be relevant or true. But the fact of the matter is that so long as coercion has been profitable, human beings have engaged in it. And the great, what I think is happening in the digital age is that we've just enhanced our ability to interact cooperatively and voluntarily. And we now have this form of capital in Bitcoin that's very resistant to coercion. Right? we can take it anywhere. If you're not being treated right in a certain country, put a put your money on your brain, cross the border, no problem. So mm-hmm. individuals are being empowered with a lot more options in the digital age. And I think this is going to this is the beginning of the end for statism, which is a business model premised purely on coercion.
0: When did it get so bad, in your opinion? So the Federal Reserve started in the 1920s. I think most people have a pretty neutral view on it because it's not – I remember, like, for example, watching um, the Ron Paul run for president back in – was it 2008? and 2012. And he was a so – he's got enough respect. He was so far out in terms of uh, – Discussing these things, a lot of people like yourself and a lot of the Bitcoin people discuss now about, you know, you'd have sort of like John McCain talking about, you know, like bombing Iran or Iraq or whatever. And then you go to Mitt Romney and then he'd be talking about, you know, like corporate taxation. And then Ron Paul will come out and say things like, oh, you know, um, the Federal Reserve shouldn't exist. And, you know, audit of the Fed and the IRS. So we need to go back to a gold standard. And like it's like no one even engaged with him on those topics. It was like, where the hell is he coming from? What, what? And I, I think people are starting to realize these sorts of topics now more so. Mm-hmm. Um when did the when did this sort of these these problems you're talking about sort of diluting people's wealth through the expansionary money, monetary supply and, um you know, the Fed sort of benefiting powerful incumbents to, to the uh, detriment of ordinary people when they engage in these policies. Is this from the 1970s onward when when Nixon took us off the gold standard? Um, no, to just always been sort of endemic to, yeah, to when they started. It's endemic to central banking.
1: And, you know, the federal reserve was just the latest implementation. You know, we had the bank of England, uh, bank of Amsterdam before that central banking is, it's always been the prime apparatus of theft used by government because it's so insidious and deceptive, right? Again, if you just print money and you dilute people and you can think of it like this, so long as economic activity is growing, right? We're increasing the economic surplus. That the central bank is just kind of this uh back door that allows it to kind of harvest some of that surplus for for itself for the politically connected few which typically are, are within the halls of government so there's always been this huge incentive to commandeer the money supply and indeed every government every state that's ever existed has done it right other than these kind of glimmers of a gold standard we had at the beginning of the founding of the US, right, where the the state had just not become strong enough, we had just sort of a free, uh, free gold exchange standard, we had very low and predictable taxes, no taxes in many cases. And always in those instances where state intervention is reduced, economic surplus booms. But that increases the incentives, again, for people to plunder, right. So the central bank is Something that evolved for a, due to a need that gold presented. Gold was limited in its portability, effectively. So for all the reasons, you know, I've talked about this ad, na, ad nauseum, so I won't do it again here. Gold was chosen by the free market as money for a very distinct set of reasons. Uh, one of the properties gold lacks was portability. So in order to scale gold for a globalizing society, we had to centralize the custody we had to issue gold-backed paper. It made gold faster effectively, made it more transactable. The problem is it just introduced the need to trust humans to govern that custody, right? To To be true to contract law. Each dollar was a contract for gold. That's all it was. It was a circulating contract that we could all treat as gold because we knew we had a call option on it. We could take it to the custodian and redeem it for real money, which was gold. But Governments arrogated themselves the right to break that contract. And they've done it through inflation. They've done it through fractional reserve banking. They've right. done it through capital controls. Uh, they've done it through executive order 6102. It's just, we know what works. We know like our, the legal system itself, right? Has been bifurcated. Like we have contract law and then we have financial law. Financial law is this whole different beast because it's, it's um, deviated from contract law. So we know what works when we're dealing with one another, right? We sign a contract, there's an agreement, there's terms, you satisfy the terms, I pay you, we get on, we both create value because it's mutual, right? I'm giving you something that you value more than what I'm giving up and vice versa. But when we make a transaction non-voluntary and I just put a gun to your head and say, give me your gold, clearly that's value destructive to you, right? Like you're just losing, you just lose in that equation and I gain there's no mutual gain. So there's no aggregate value creation. Well, when we take the dollar, that's a contract for gold, and we break that contract, that's value destructive. So this is the problem, like, and this is why it's such a deep philosophical issue is because it's, in my opinion, we're trying to construct our socioeconomic systems with the wrong material. We think this statist scaffolding works, but it doesn't, the coercion always rots, it always rots the system, and it always collapses on itself. And that explains the civilizational boom and bust across history. We have a great society rise up, right? They create a lot of wealth. They tend to conquer a lot of people. There's a lot of militarism involved because it's profitable, right? To plunder. But then when the prospects of gain from without sort of dry up, they start to turn in. They start to violate the property rights of their, their own citizens. And that's where we're at. We're in late stage US statism now. And, you know, right on time too. what are we 250 years ish into this experiment empires last about 250 years. So I, I think we're definitely going to see a collapse of the U S empire. My hope though, my optimistic take is that we're going to see the end of statism itself, that human beings will now start to engage and interact, interact and cooperate and organize themselves in these flexible cooperative networks that digital technology enables. So we're moving away from the nation state as the dominant organizational model in the world, which is centered on the central bank, to something more like the networked state, you know, something we've never seen before. Um, It's a big change, but uh, I think
0: the net outcome is is a big win for human beings. So would you say that once the connection between the dollar and the gold uh, got violated and destroyed, that and enable sort of a new phase of of basically no constraints in terms of how to um, increase this monetary supply sort of causing more inflation and now it's just going to be a sort of um, rapidly accelerating problem how do you see it going i assume you see it going worse now that the we're now what 40 50 years into this destruction of linking the dollar to the gold and we're printing money more than ever before and I assume you think it's going to probably continue to accelerate. And and where do you see that going?
1: Yeah. So gold historically was this disciplinarian force on government. So this was the beauty of the gold standard globally, at least, which still persists by the way, like China's the biggest buyer and producer of gold, like all these countries that are forcing inflation on their people by just expanding their, their currency supplies, just robbing them. They're also hoarding gold because gold is geopolitical money. You go to war with another country you don't want them to pay tribute to you and you defeat them you don't want them to pay tribute in fiat i don't want you to pay me in the money you can print i want you to pay me in the money that nobody can produce that's hard that soars value right so gold still is the game gold is the game the world is playing even though most of the population is omitted from that game right you can own a little bit of private gold here and bury it in your backyard and try to participate but you're not going to be a shareholder in a central bank It's just not going to happen for Mm 99.99% of humans. So that is the game that is still being played. And I think that it's definitely getting worse. uh, Because post 1971, nation states throw off the yoke of this disciplinary force. So historically, again, if they had misbehaved with monetary policy or printed too much money, well, gold would leave your country. Right, gold enforces this balance of payments on your on your country in a way that uh, at least force some degree of accountability in the political class. Mm-hmm. That they couldn't just spin willy nilly. Like, no matter what decision today in a fiat currency environment, no matter what decision is made, no matter what bad bureaucratic scheme is set up, it can be paid for. You can print money ad infinitum. Mm-hmm. So there's zero accountability to customer preference, and that's why I mean this is why you have a shitty customer service experience at the DMV. This is why you have a shitty customer service experience at the post office. Like they don't care. They're a monopoly, right? Complain all you want, put it in the box. You don't have any other option. So I'm just going to be an asshole and keep doing my job. Like it's the same dynamic. If there's not competition, right? And we know this as free market capitalists, competition is the discovery process that keeps people honest. Right? If I can introduce a new product into the market that's cheaper than what you're doing at the same quality, then I'm going to out-compete you. So it keeps you honest, right? You have to keep your margins honest relative to the existing competition, which means I have to listen to my customers. What my customers want, this is the old adage, right? The customer's always right. Well, the customer's only always right when there's free competition. So this very idea of monopoly, coercion, like like stymieing competition through violence, stymieing economic competition with violent competition, basically. This is what we've been, this is how we've been self-destructive across history. We just keep thinking that we'll create the model that takes all, you know, we'll be the strongest nation state and we'll just take uh, money from everyone else and that'll work and we'll be the dominant power forever. Well, what's happening? What's happening to our culture today? What happened to our industrial capacity as a country over the past 50 years? All right. Everything's been offshored. Our culture is in this weird postmodern, psychotic, mass psychosis state. Um, it's it's cancer, right? It's can't, Coercion is cancer. Coercion is socioeconomic cancer. And we are riddled with it in the fiat currency complex. And I, I like to drill into this word to fiat. Because so many people, especially in Bitcoin today, you know, before Bitcoin, no one knew what fiat meant. Post right. Bitcoin, the term has been normalized to some degree, but people still just associate it with money. That's not what it means. Fiat is decree, right? Because I said so do it because I said so. And the only original fiat that was ever true was fiat lux, which is let there be light, right? It's from the Bible. God said, let there be light. Boom. Here we are. All fiat by man is man trying to play God. Man saying this should be because I said so. And try that in your household. That shit doesn't work. Do it, because, I mean, maybe with your kids, right? You have to be a tyrant with your kids until a certain point, And then hopefully they grow up enough to be strong and free and capable adults. Well, we're taking that model that we have to use with our toddlers and we're trying to apply it to all adult humans. We're saying, use this money because I said so. Wear this mask because I said so. Take this shot because I said so. It doesn't work, right? People push back. It's against human nature. Humans are born to be free. And we're trying to contradict it with this political psychosis a fiat, and it doesn't work. It will fail every single time. So I think, I mean, again, I'm trying to take the optimistic view here that yeah. that model breaks down. We know that model breaks down. Like, I don't even think that's up for argumentation. It's just, it, show me a time it hasn't broken down. Empirically, If I just, if I deduce from first principles, I know that it breaks down because you're pushing someone to do something that they don't voluntarily want to do. Of course, that's going to create a negative externality. They're going to they're gonna backstab you or short-circuit you or or dodge you or resist you or rebel against you every chance you get, right? If you're just a tyrannical father in the house, like, uh, oh, eat your broccoli and your kid's 21 years old and they don't like broccoli. One day they're going to say, fuck you, dad, I'm not eating the broccoli, right? Fiat does not work. It's not sustainable. So we know the model, that model, if I deduce some first principles, it doesn't work. If I look empirically at the history of nation states, it doesn't work. Every state that's told people what to do has crumbled. So what else are we going to do? We're we going to keep doing this. We're we going to keep repeating the same pattern of behavior for the rest of our existence. Or are we going to try something new? Right, Like Rothbard said, why don't we try freedom? Why don't try liberty? It's the one thing we've never actually tried. And in fact, the United States is the greatest, closest experiment to liberty we've ever had. All right, We had a huge economic boom early on. We became a dominant superpower just by letting go like letting the market do its thing not intervening not coercing and so you know i hope the next iteration of this experiment is going to be that much more sophisticated and robust thanks to digital tools and and bitcoin
0: what are the second order effects you mentioned this before like the second order effects of having having this fiat money and you 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 draw on some interesting uh sorts of connections between if you have a money that you know let's say lacks integrity um what other ripple effects it, it creates in society uh so we mentioned maybe like so prolonged wars is obviously one of them mm. if people are not familiar with that so one of the reasons why world war one was able to continue the european powers basically got the gold standard to fight this war leading to um basically the ability to print unlimited amounts of money and prolong this war years and years and years longer than they could in the past mm-hmm. uh because they could print money it wasn't attached to gold that of course then led to World War Two, uh, you know, caused Germany to have these horrible economic consequences, leading to World War Two and Hitler's rise. So you, you can see all these sort of unexpected effects of degrading your your money. What else do you think are results, deleterious results of having money that's not based on anything, that's not backed by anything?
1: Yeah, I think a major one that we're seeing today, and I, I guess the first point to make is that politics is downstream from economics people this is another mass delusion like people think oh i can depending on what political class i identify myself with i can force my opinion on others in a way that changes the economy and it's like again this is marginally true that you can intervene into an economy but again it's a a complex system right it's going to flow around your intervention and you're going to create all these unintended consequences that screw things up so uh to make the point somewhat clear you know in 19 in the 1970s when we're on the gold standard or at least going into the 70s there was much more uh political cohesion actually there's much more middle aisle um Mm -hmm. less polarized yeah less polarized and this is largely because the country had been growing post-war period there's a big economic boom you know we uh had printed a lot of money so inflation started to become an issue but the the point is this that the political polarization becomes a reflection of the actual disparity in wealth because you have different groups trying to politically fight over access to the fiat currency spigot basically voting themselves or their Mm -hmm. their initiatives money and so going off of the gold standard in 1970 um and again, you could just look in, look into the Cantillon effect. The more you print money, the more you create a uh, spirit, the more wealth disparity you create. All right, have And, have not. and mm. so again, the political landscape becomes a reflection of this economic reality. And so I would argue largely where we are today with this postmodern, you know, total political divide, like, like to the point where red demonizes blue and blue demonizes red, and it's really deeply entrenched psychotic behavior uh you know all of that is rooted in the the economics of corrupt money so cultural corruption cultural degradation mm-hmm. postmodernism relativism right and so fiat in my opinion and i've written about this because i think there's a deep scientific principle here that's scarcely explored um i think when your money is relativistic right there's it's not tethered to anything it's just a matter of opinion now mm-hmm. there's no fact you could say gold was like the fact of money, right? It's a proven money. No one can counterfeit it. No one could bend the rules, right? It was a it was a, uh, a game with set rules, effectively. Fiat currency is the exact opposite. It's a game where all the rules are just made up. You never know what they are going to be. You never know what they how many dollars they're going to print, how many are in circulation, who gets to decide, what are their criteria for deciding, who's profiting, where are they? You can't, none of it. It's just total, it's a madhouse. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a scientific uh, discipline called material engagement theory, and this is part of uh, cognitive archaeology, actually. And it makes the point that. Our tools, the things we make come to be reflected in us and our behavior and our thought processes and all of this, and we kind of know this like like you and I are clearly running very different software, mental software implementations than someone from 500 years ago. Right? They're speaking a different language. They, they carry themselves differently every day. They think differently, their worldviews, like everything's different. So it's like, as we create new tools, we're sort of upgrade our own software in tandem with it. And so my theory is that money is like the most important tool in the world across a lot of dimensions, right? It's the most valuable. It's the one we think through. It's almost like literacy or numeracy. We think through dollars, we think in dollars. Mm-hmm. I think that when we corrupt that tool, that we're actually corrupting ourselves. We're corrupting our own mental, uh, our mental architecture. And in Fiat, it's again, it's just relativism, right? There's no truth. You can't, there is no truth in Fiat. It's because I said, so who said, so why did they say Mm -hmm. so? How can they back that with what force should I be scared? Should I resist? What should you do? Like, there's no, there's no like gravity in Fiat, right? Gold was gravity. It's like no one could change the supply so we all just kind of adhere to its rules. Which is exactly why government hated it. It's like god this fucking gravity, gold gravity, I can't escape it. I want to be free to spend and do whatever I want, wage war for as long as I want, as many places as I want. Why can't I just tax everyone without them knowing? Oh, well, turns out you can if you monopolize gold and you run this like disinformation campaign on it and you violently uh, steel gold, as you did with executive order 6102, like there are all these efforts to, to escape gravity basically by government. And so in fiat world, it's the opposite. It's just, there's no, there's no up or down or left or right. It's, it, you know, everyone is their own truth. and your pronoun is whatever you want. You know,
0: I'm a flag. I'm a, I'm a piece of grass. Let's bring it up because it's, it's very interesting you mentioned that. So the, I, I heard Douglas Murray talk about this. So at the end of of empires whether we're talking about the greeks or the romans and now us there tends to be this obsession a documented obsession with sort of gender fluidity yeah. and being obsessed with gender and and changing the norms around it um and so the question is why and he posits that it's basically because something like gender biological well, reality like sex biological realities this is the ultimate sort of truth it's it's so self-evident and if you can get people to even believe that that's shifting and that's untrue and that's not based in reality then you can question everything else yes. uh, then there is no truth and that's exactly what postmodernism, as you referenced um stands for it, it it's it's an attack on objective reality and, and i never put two and two together in that respect and postmodernism actually uh, came to prominence around the same time of, of course as, as the gold standard i think the that's 70s right. and 80s is really exactly started getting you know, its stride and it's that postmodernism yeah. is an attack on objectivity it's an attack on uh, the ability to know what is true. It's ability. Yes. They deny that there is real truth yes. in the world, and so if you corrupt the money supply, as you said, if money isn't isn't real, it's not based on anything. It's it's uh, subject to opinions and whims. Then everything else is. Um, that's that's interesting. That, that's how we get to the point well, where, you know, we where we are now yeah and the the civilizations you bring up that
1: start to experiment with gender fluidity in their later stages they also bastardized their monetary protocols right they too were suffering from corrupted money in late empire so this is like it's something that's gone hand in hand I don't think it's been deeply explored material engagement theory has explored a lot of aspects of this but not it hasn't drilled into the money I don't know what this it's such a strange thing to me that it seems like it's a very taboo topic even You know, my show is called The What Is Money Show. But when I talk to people about money that aren't... They're not in the Bitcoin circles, let's say. They kind of get skeptical. They're like, well, why are you talking about money so much? Like, are you trying to make money? Like, they think I'm trying to like... Like, to talk about money is taboo. Like, to talk about power You got a new canine coin coming up. Yeah. So it's like, it's it's so (laughs) taboo. So you have to ask yourself, why is it so taboo? Right? Are we conditioned to like, not want to think about or talk about money and power very deeply? Mm -hmm. Is there some... Like, is there... Who would stand to gain from such conditioning, right? If you're going to hide something, you're going to hide corruption and coercion. Seems useful to hide it in plain sight and never talk about it, and then just wrap it in all these euphemisms. Inflation, right? Inflation sounds great. Like, oh, my house is more. It's good for my you. house yeah, is yeah. more valuable. My <laughs> stocks are going up. Like, denominate mm-hmm. that shit and change in money supply. It's all flat. It's all flat. Yeah. Right. The past ten years, the stock market boom, complete illusion. Mm-hmm. Denominate it in the delta of the federal reserve's balance sheet. It goes flat to down, denominated in gold, flat, Mm -hmm. denominated in Bitcoin. It's collapsing. It's not really fair though, because Bitcoin's monetizing. So that's kind of a, kind of a bogey there. But the point is this, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, we, we have destroyed our relationship with truth, at least partially, in my opinion, by destroying our relationship with hard money, because hard money is truth, right? It is work. Gold is money backed by work. You cannot counterfeit work. You cannot fake work. You cannot pretend work. You either deliver results or you die. This is Darwinian reality. And that's what Bitcoin is, right? Bitcoin is taking us back to truth. It's like money as an instrument for trading time and energy must be of a commensurate scarcity as time and energy. We can't just print time and energy. Therefore, we can't just print money. Without destroying our socioeconomic cooperation and I think destroying ourselves individually in the process. The
0: couple of things people are familiar with were outside the space. They know Bitcoin is capped at some point. Um, they know you can sort of, you know, it's another advantage is that you can send a, a large amount of it in a relatively quick period of time around the world beyond just the fact that it's scarce. So, why, what are the biggest advantages it gives to society? Well, it's incorruptible money. We've never had a
1: social construct, which again, nation states, money, human rights. These are all social constructs, right? They're useful fictions effectively. Um, we've never had a social construct that we ourselves could not corrupt. Even the United States, right? One of the most successful social constructs in human history built on the American constitution, the bill of rights. Okay. Great. We, we discovered principles through human action. Historically, we scribbled them down on a constitutional document. We said, this is going to be the centerpiece of our entire um, organization as, as the United States, right? As a Republic. And where are we today? 250 years later, right? We're talking about mandating injections into children. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is that consistent with private property rights? I don't think so. We have a central yeah. bank well, it took us, it took three attempts to get a central bank into the United States. The first two were rejected, uh, largely by efforts from Andrew Jackson, who's my, one of my favorite, uh, us presidents in that regard, the central bank is anti-capitalistic. It is only there to violate private property rights. It does nothing else. It can do nothing else. It manages the money supply. So it's managing your contract to gold. If it can artificially print new contracts for itself. And ultimately rescind the contract entirely, as was done in 1971. Mm-hmm. What's that? What is it? How is that serving the American constitution that this country was founded upon? It's attacking mm-hmm. the American mm-hmm. constitution. All right. The right to bear arms. That's already obliterated in many states in the country. That's under attack in many others. We've just never had everything that we create, even the best of intentions the best of ideas, it becomes corrupted over time. But with Bitcoin, it's something fundamentally different. We've taken these principles of private property, of uh, you know no undue search and seizure. like Bitcoin's really hard to steal. You can't mm-hmm. inflate it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's right. anchored in energy expenditure, which is to say work, so you can only obtain it through work. Obviously there's a principle of equality embedded in this that you can't just print money. I can't just press. And by the way, when we say print money, it's the federal reserve is a centrally managed SQL database local inside of the fed building. And they just update the database when they create new money. There's not even really much printing occurring anymore. (laughs) One keystroke to increase the money supply or actual productive work or Since Mm -hmm. you can't steal Bitcoin, you have to obtain it through voluntary exchange. You have to engage in work, create value, exchange that value for Bitcoin. So we're just, it's an incorruptible money that the 21 million hard cap and the consensus mechanisms that, that cohere its integrity cannot be broken. There's no conceivable way to break them by any individual, any institution, any nation state. And this is the beauty of Bitcoin is that it's really just optimized for that. To preserve its integrity, to preserve cohesion of the social layer by honoring their individual self interest and by being unchangeable, it's immutable. It doesn't. There's no corruption. There's no. There's nothing hidden. There's a simple way to think about it. Right. There's nothing. Hidden.
0: Blackrock can't create any more of it either. Blackrock can't do
1: it. Yeah. See, it's the whole thing. It can't. Yeah. You can't game Bitcoin. And so, what do you do as a, as a rational economic actor? Is you just adapt your survival strategy to Bitcoin's rules? It's it's something it's superordinate to jurisdictional law, even right? There's no law you can pass to to change Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You could outlaw it in your country. Right. You can do That's all good. the things, mm-hmm. prevent people interacting with it. But you're not going to change Bitcoin. Nobody's going to change. No law, no word, no decree, no fiat can change twenty one million. So you have an incorruptible base layer of money for a global digital non-state economy that's the great hope of bitcoin
0: you say bitcoin is is the best protector of individual self-sovereignty and maybe even property rights and that property rights is the foundation of western civilization it's it's the most important right can you sort of delineate that for the audience mm-hmm. a little bit why property rights are just so essential to having every other freedom yeah Property is freedom, by the way. So, life, liberty, property. These
1: were explored and played with for thousands of years. They were ratified in the Magna Carta in 1215, I think it was the year it was signed by King John. Um, and they had this notion of inviolable property, right? The only way to have a sustainable civilization was one in which you were free to live your life, which is basically your future freedom, right? If someone takes your life, they've taken your future. Liberty is your present freedom, Mm -hmm. right? You can express your freedom in the present. You are, you are liberated to do whatever it is you see fit. So long as you do not transgress against the liberty of others, right? That's the natural boundary to freedom. And property is just the past expression of your life and liberty. You've taken your life and liberty. You've gone into the world. You've planted a garden. You've built a business. You've built something useful for someone and traded with other self-owned people and created value, created economic abundance. You've economized, right? You've economized want satisfaction. I can promise you for thousands of years, people wish they had a big box that kept food cold and kept ice frozen, but we just didn't have it, right? There was no, to economize the satisfaction of that want. it didn't exist. Unless you were an Eskimo, right? You were not having, you didn't have a freezer basically until, what it was invented 150 years ago, it's that process of trade and innovation and preservation of property rights that people can reliably plan for the future. If you Mm -hmm. can't store the fruits of your labor in something that's inviolable, or at least largely inviolable, or holds some integrity, right? If you can't store and create wealth over time, you cannot plan for the future, right? You could be the most genius inventor mm-hmm. that ever lived, but you can't,
0: Right. if you can't c- build airplanes, can't, can't build- do it in a day. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. And you need, we also can't do it individually. Mm-hmm. This is the division of labor, right? Many hands make light work. Well, many minds make even lighter work and many minds accrete over time too, right? We inherit knowledge from our ancestors and we build upon it. These are the shoulders of giants on which we stand, take property out of the equation that all goes away. Nothing can be built. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ayn Rand, she has a great quote on this. But I'll roughly paraphrase, but it's like, she says, property rights are the base of all human rights. That if you cannot reliably store the product of your labor and secure it from the attacks of others, then you can't have any other human rights. That whole useful fiction that we believe we have all these basic human rights here in the United States or civil liberties, like it's total BS without property. If you can't store wealth, okay. what? Like if we're all just cavemen, there's like, we're in conditions of total economic scarcity. Do you think someone's going to care about your right to three hot meals a day? Like whose responsibility is that? Mm -hmm. Who's going to prepare that? Mm -hmm. No one cares. Right. Tell you who does care. Someone in an an economy where there is property and you can accumulate wealth and you can buy those three meals a day. You can serve the self-interest of someone else by paying them. And they can serve your self-interest and mutual exchange by feeding you three hot meals a day. That's what works.
0: Human rights, just mm-hmm. based on fluffy air and wishes, don't fucking work. Right. Uh, you can't even have compassion if you're if you're hungry. No. Right. You can't even think about the environment or all these no you know accessory uh, issues if you don't have that. Mm-hmm. There's an old saying in Tennessee that I think might
1: be apt here, and they say, you know, wish in one hand, shit in the other one. See which one fills up first. Mm-hmm. things have to be created through work and freedom. We cannot wish new fiat currency into existence to solve our problems. We cannot wish new laws to fix the environment. We cannot wish a new mandate to scare the virus away. Like these things have to be done through work and voluntary cooperation. When we start to penetrate that boundary of private property of others, which we're doing through fiat currency, inflation through all mandates, through all regulation, through all state activity, everything the state does is ultimately a violation of private property rights. The salaries that are paid to senators and house members are funded through taxation. Taxation is theft. Did you negotiate your tax rate? Did you sit down and say, Hey, here are the services I would like rendered to me. Here's how much I'm willing to pay. And you have a little back and forth and you reach an agreement. No, you didn't. Is that not theft? If I just send you a bill and say, Hey, you owe me this much money. And you're like, well, I don't, you know, I don't think I owe you that much. Well, if you don't pay me, I'm going to come get you and throw you in jail, or I'm going to come hurt you. Is that theft? Is that coercion? Well, then taxation is theft and coercion. Everything the state does, the entire apparatus is funded through theft and coercion. This is the great awakening, right? The great we- Great reset is the propaganda we're being fed. They're trying to reinvent themselves. they're trying to wrap themselves in moral camouflage as the state always has done, right? from each according to their ability to each according to their need was the old marxist credo now it's in 10 years you'll own nothing and be happy right, right. Exactly. directly exactly. explicitly saying you'll have no property rights and you'll be happy we know axiomatically that is bullshit so i mean i get passionate about it because i just i think it's really important if we're going to be free and survive we need property
0: it absolutely is i mean n- nothing you say is radical given that in say 2018 or 2019, I don't think there are hardly any people who would have been able to anticipate just how far the governments can go in just a couple of years, not only in expanding monetary supply, but in terms of the restrictions they put on human movements, in terms of not being able to participate in society unless you take um, a certain uh, vaccine, which by the way, they gave the carve out for, you know, being immune from liability. And I think the most shocking of all is that to see how many people have willingly just gone along and say, oh, you know, they have our best interests in mind. Um, I think that was kind of, you know, sort of the most disturbing aspect. And then to see, you know, places like Australia go so far yeah. extreme and a, a a proper democracy that I always had, you know, everyone's always had respect for one one of the great, you know, uh, human rights protectors in the world. And then you see certain other countries like Sweden, Norway go the opposite way. And you're like, I, I didn't see that coming. So it's yeah. it's just very it's the, the point is that you do not know how fast things can change. We thought we're, you know the the days of the 30s and 40s where you could have these just calamitous consequences um, come to otherwise normalized societies would not occur, and now here we are, and obviously it's not as bad, thank God. Um, but not um, you know you never know. It could be right? yeah. it, 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 Who knows what's going to happen in the future? I just want to ask you, uh, imparting uh, given Bitcoin sort of um, price action currently um where do you see it going over say the next 12 months and what's your projections for let's say several years down the line how how are you making sense yeah
1: I you know it it seems to me like perhaps the four-year cycle is broken down I would have expected a new um we're already at a close to an all-time high and we were at an all-time high recently but I was expecting a much higher all-time high price but it looks like that expectation has permeated the marketplace in general. So people, you see, you're seeing a lot of liquidations, like we had a huge liquidation, cascading liquidation recently. So people are trying to like lever bet that pattern playing out repeatedly and they're getting wiped out. So I think the cycle, the four year cycle is likely gonna break down and we're probably just gonna go into this, you know, another unpredictable pattern of grind upward. I would say it's gonna track roughly to global Mm -hmm. into expansion. Um, I still expect Bitcoin, I had a $307,000 price target for this peak, but again, it doesn't look like it's running these peaks and pull downs anymore. So it's really hard to say, but I expect Bitcoin to still be at that price range within the next five years. I don't see how it can't be. Um, I also think fiat currency inflation is going to accelerate. We're going to, you know, this is Mm -hmm. anyone thinks you can ever put the genie back in the bottle does not understand the nature of debt-based money. It requires yeah additional incremental additional liquidity typically by orders of magnitude as we saw from 2008 to 2020 to keep the system sustainable so the next bailout or whatever whatever they call it it will be in the tens of trillions of dollars um and bitcoin is just an insurance policy on that whole thing so so far so good bitcoin's working as designed yeah
0: That reminds me of the, the Friedman quote. There's nothing as permanent as a temporary government programs. Once, once you go down this path, there's no coming back. Uh, Last thing for people who are just starting to wrap their minds around sort sort of the economic philosophy that you espouse. Um, is there any one or two books that you'd recommend as an introduction?
1: Um, yeah, you can read online for free. What has government done to our money by Murray Rothbard. It's a great intro. It's maybe 30 pages long. It'll give you the whole, the whole issue very easy intro um if you want to go deep into the rabbit hole i would pick up human action by mises it's a 1200 page book written i think 1949 he i mean it is it's masterful it's economics it's philosophy it's beautiful very hard to read but worth it it will change you Um, and i would say just check me out on twitter i'm at breedlove22 i've got links to a lot of my writing which reference a lot of these works uh, we have the What Is Money show. We talk about these concepts in depth
0: for hundreds and hundreds of hours. So, come join us. Absolutely. And then we'll put the the link to uh, your show and the uh, and your Twitter bio in the show notes. Rob thank you so much. Really enjoyed the discussion. It was fascinating. Thanks, man. Glad to be here, Ashton. Appreciate you having me. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast, and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week.